Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 13th, 2023, late afternoon or mid-afternoon in California, late uh on March 13th, around the world. Some of you may already be in March 14th. Earlier today, did a show with the uh, the writer Susan Verde, Say One Kind Thing, Lessons in Acceptance, Love and Letting Go. She's an expert on mindfulness and yoga. And I think one of the things we implicitly at least discussed was the idea that we can manifest our core, our innermost thoughts, our most hidden, repressed, or most honest thoughts through language, that language is still the thing that can save us, that words matter. And if, we, if only we can discover those words, that language, that can make us better people, happier people, and enable us to lead more meaningful lives. That's, of course, generally true. Although my guest today, um, the title of his new book, Finding the Words, uh, Walking Through Profound Loss with Hope and Purpose, Colin Campbell um, has had a particularly painful experience with loss and indeed with language. Uh, almost four years ago in June 2019, he was involved in a tragic car crash. He was in a car with his wife and his two children. The two children were killed. He and his wife survived. And in many ways, this new book, a memoir of his loss, Finding the Words, is about language and the relationship between language and grief. Colin, welcome. Um, Language and grief, what did you or what have you discovered in these dark or perhaps not so dark four years since the death of your two children. Yeah, I, I, I love that that book you just talked about. So, you know, focusing on the importance of language, I, I found language to be invaluable for me just to process my loss, just to literally understand it. And the idea for me, what I discovered was if I'm talking about Ruby and Hart, my children, or where I'm at in my grief with, with somebody who's you know, a willing participant who's a good listener, that it helped me just to literally process it and understand it and accept it as real, because it's so difficult uh, to accept when you have to confront a sudden, uh, unexpected, profound loss. And and the other the other thing about language is that I discovered I needed to find the words to articulate my needs to my friends and family because. Nobody really knows what to say to somebody who's just who's just lost a, a, a loved one, you know, a particular child or a sibling or a spouse. Um, it's so particularly difficult. this kind of loss, Colin. As a half joke to you uh, before we went live, I'm not. I wasn't particularly looking forward to this show because, as a parent uh, of two similarly aged children to the the children you lost, it's just. It's such a difficult thing, uh, as you understand more than anyone, to discuss, particularly for other people. Yeah, yeah. I, and I found that to be true. I found that my closest friends, many of them, 
were just too terrified to say anything to me. I mean, they wouldn't say Ruby and Hart's names because they thought, oh, that might upset Colin, you know? So, so, so what are we going to talk about? And all I wanted to talk about was Ruby and Hart and my overwhelming feelings of grief and loss. And so I found out pretty quickly that I was going to have to help them. I was going to have to give them some kind of guidelines to make it feel safe to talk to me. You know, uh, I wanted to laugh and I wanted to cry um, with friends and family. So I developed this thing that my wife and I would call our grief spiel, uh, which basically meant that I pulled people aside one at a time and said, you know, here's the deal. You can't trigger me. I'm already triggered. I'm triggered all the way. Uh, and I need to talk about Ruby and Hart. I need to hear their names and I need to talk about my loss. And it was so helpful to people because like I said, they were, they were terrified. They didn't know what to say or if they would say the wrong thing. And if we need conversations, we can't have people walking on eggshells around us. It, it doesn't help us. You had an interesting piece also earlier this month in the Atlantic, uh, what losing my two children taught me about grief borrowed from the book. And, um, you you argue there are no words acts as a per, a perfect conversation um killer you suggest that a lot of people mm. responded to your to the tragedy to your loss by saying there are no words yeah and yeah. you suggest that there are always words you have faith uh, in language and you, it seems mm -hmm. as if one of the ways that you deal or dealt with grief is by rediscovering your faith in language yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that it, it was it was bizarre just how often people would say there are no words like it would just we would hear it over and over again in the early days of our grief. And I was like, wait, not you, too. <laughs> and I understand where it comes from. Absolutely. It, it, you know, the idea is that you've ex I've experienced this traumatic loss that's so, so large that, you know, what words could possibly suffice? You know, what could I possibly say to convey the depths of my feelings for you? And what could I possibly say to, to give you comfort? So I'll say that there are no words and it'll be safe. But then that, that ends our conversation. You're basically saying we can't talk about it. Your grief is so big. Let's give up right now. But isn't that, it's even in a, in a sense, it's even worse when someone says there are no words. It means they can't think of any, they, they don't know what to say. Yeah, yeah. And I think it also, it comes from a, 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 the thought, the misguided thought that, that their job is to comfort me and there is no comfort for me, so what do they say? But I, I don't need someone to try and think of words that are gonna make me feel better. I'm not gonna feel better, I'm gonna feel pain. I'm gonna feel the pain of loss and that's okay. What I really need is my community to be there willing to sit with me in that pain. Uh, they're not trying to fix it, you know, and, and it was a real eye opener to me because I had no idea how to grieve. You know, if, if the shoe were on the other foot, I wouldn't say anything. I would say there are no words and I'd, and I'd stay away. <laughs> I would have been terrified to talk to somebody who lost their children. Absolutely. So I think I have a lot of, of empathy for people uh, who then have to deal with me. <laughs> because I was, I was in their shoes in, in a big way. Yeah, and, and, and it, it always seems to the, be the situation in terrible grief-stricken moments that it's the people grieving who end up caring for the people trying to articulate sympathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there, there is some of that, definitely. Um, and there are moments where you feel overwhelmed. Like, I, I, I don't have space for your, your grief as well. 
most of the time, I loved when people would talk about Ruby Hart and then break down in tears. Um, it sounds counterintuitive, but it made me feel like I wasn't alone. It's like, oh, you're crying too? Yeah, me too. This yeah, well, I mean, everyone, I mean, I it's the first time, obviously, we've ever spoken. I don't know anything about your family or your kids, but just through the book and through this conversation, I wouldn't say you're bringing them to life, but at least you're introducing them to me and to our audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always a little hard, but always beautiful to be able to talk about Ruby and Hart and share their lives. Yeah, your, um, your background is in theater and, and, and film. I want to talk about that. Just as your mm -hmm. wife, you're based in L.A. Um, not only have you come out with this new book about um, your experience of losing your two children, uh, but you also have a, a one-man, so to speak, shit show, that's how you describe it, called Grief, which has done quite well. I'm assuming you really wrestled with going public on this stuff in terms of doing a, a live performance or writing a book. Mm. How, how did you work that one through? Well, it's interesting. I, I started writing that, that solo show uh, just a week after the car crash I began. And it really just came from a necessity. I, I felt a need. I had to express myself just so I could understand what was happening. It was such a surreal time in my life. Um, and it was so, I was so overwhelmed. You know, grief can feel like this amorphous blob that, that we're just a victim of. And if I find, if I can find some actions to take, I can sort of move through grief and it makes, gives me agency and, and it helped me to start writing this piece about grief, this solo show. And then when it came time, I, I kept writing it and it kept getting longer and longer. And then it was a full length show. And then I thought, how is this going to be received? Uh, it's very raw. It, it, it was all finished within five months after the crash. So now it's, it's four years later almost, but the whole thing was written in fresh, fresh grief. Um, and it's funny. There's a lot of very, very dark humor. Um, and, uh, and it's also, you know, uh, hard. It's hard to, hard to listen to. And I didn't know how it would be received. I was, I was concerned. Like, would people like just literally get up out of their seats and leave? It would be too upsetting. I don't know. But actually, I found a quite incredible response from the audience. Um, in particular, people who, who have lost a, a child or a spouse uh, or a sibling uh, or a parent or, or a very dear loved one that... Uh, they also, having experienced profound grief, get a lot out of the show. It feels like well, the responses I've been getting are like, you're, you're giving voice to my feelings that I've thought about and felt but haven't shared, and it feels good. Uh, yeah. We've been doing a lot of shows recently, uh, Colin, on AI and on smart machines, smart learning. Now these regenerative um, AI engines are supposed to replicate language, GPT. Mm chat and all that sort of thing um you mentioned agency and grief and this terrible tragedy resulted in you rediscovering agency to manifest your grief of course the two things that smart machines don't have are agency and grief or the ability to mm -hmm. grieve this whole process is is a, is a peculiarly uniquely human one isn't it yeah yeah it, it, in my show I, I talk about the ancient greeks because uh, I'm a theater theater guy, <laughs> and so um, you know those those ancient Greek plays they have large chunks of them that are just devoted 
to grieving. Just you have a character comes on stage and they just grieve. And I always remembered it when I was a student of theater thinking, who would want to put this on? Like, it's just too much just on and on and on about grief. Get, get back to the action of the play. And now I, I look at it like, wow, I think that, that the Greeks, they, they felt this need to just share the grief because it's what makes us human to your point about AI. It's like, yeah, you're right. To be human is to grieve because if we're going to love, we're going to lose. That's, that's the reality. Um, you know, hopefully we don't lose children. We don't lose people before their old age, but, but the reality is we, we do, we do lose people before their time. Um, and, uh, and I think it's important as a community to talk about that. Language again. Um, is one of the problems, uh, Colin, um, medicine and our very utilitarian attitude mm. to life and death. We did a show, we've done many shows on the various crises and dysfunctionalities of the American medical system. One in particular with a young female doctor, Anna DeForest, who wrote or has written a novel, A History of Present Illness. She came on the show a few months uh -huh. ago. And she talked about how American medicine does such a bad job of dealing with life's greatest mystery, death, because it can't be quantifiable, can't be looked at in charts in terms of probability. Do you think one of the problems with our current culture, which doesn't really address the issue of grief, is our reliance on science or our fetishization of science and medicine? Uh, it Maybe I think also it's it's partly because the medical the medicalization of death means that it takes yeah. it out of the community. That's so, her point. Yeah, so someone gets sick and they they're whisked off to the hospital as opposed to staying in their home and surrounded by community. So it's almost like we're we're hiding death away, um, and it adds to the mystery. I think the that sense that you know it, it, we don't see it, we don't talk about it. It's it's something that um, is taboo. Um, yeah, uh, and and I think there's also I've I've read articles about how a lot of doctors they they they're so focused they have so much information to learn about human body and medicine that they don't have time to take care of the human side of doctoring you know the bedside manner and I, I do have to say that the emer emergency care doctor who took care of my son Hart in his final moments uh, was incredible with us um, and part of what made her so incredible and so generous was everyone was, was pretty scared of us that night of the crash. You, you could feel it when we were wheeled into the emergency room, you felt that the people, they knew that, you know, Ruby was already pronounced dead. Hart was, was dying and nobody wanted to talk to us about it. Uh, and you, you could just feel the, the fear. And this doctor, um, she came right up to us, and she pulled us aside to a private room, sat us down and told us the news. You know, your, your son has three life ending injuries and we're keeping him alive just for a few more moments. You can go in and say goodbye to him. And then she said, could you tell me about Ruby and Hart? And um, it was so powerful uh, because here we are in our, in our scariest moments and this doctor wasn't scared. You know, she wasn't backing away. She she entered into our grief with us, and she gave us something to do, which was to talk about Ruby and Hart, like a task. And that was that was incredible. 
in that moment because it gave us agency again. Uh, instead mm-hmm. of just wailing impotently, we had we had something we could do. We could we could talk to her about our beautiful children, and we did. And uh, that was a powerful early lesson in the powers of words. Yeah, um, I guess thinking about it, for, for for some doctors, obviously not that doctor, death is a is a kind of failure on their part. Mm. And I'm I assume we have to get beyond that or we have to get modern medicine beyond that if not celebrating death at least recognizing that it's nobody's fault that it's a consequence of chance of bad luck did this whole experience has it changed your view of fate or luck i mean obviously you you had had the most unimaginably bad luck of you your wife and of course your two uh, children who are no longer here how did you think about luck bef- before and after the accident? Yeah. Well, before the crash, I I felt like I was incredibly lucky. <laughs> uh, I thought I was the luckiest, luckiest guy in the world. I mean, I, I was in love with my wife and my children. I thought they were the best, honestly. Um, uh, in fact, my wife, Gail, sometimes thinks like, oh, we were, we were so full of hubris because we were so full of love and um and that's why they were taken from us because we loved them too much. Um, and now I have a, a very strong reaction to the idea of luck, which is basically, I don't believe in it. Um, so anytime someone says like, Oh, you know, lucky us. It's like, no, <laughs> no. Um, and so, yeah, I, I have a very strong reaction to even just things like, you know, it'll all work out in the end or everything happens for a reason. Right all those, you know, handy catchphrases now feel repugnant to me. I was just in London last week. I went to uh, a, a show at the Royal Academy, Spain and the Hispanic world, lots of treasures from the Hispanic world the last four or 500 years. One of the paintings I saw was a, a, a painting manifesting heaven and hell. Um, and I wonder, I mean, I, I'm not sure if you are or aren't religious, but whether we live in an age of a post-religious age, in spite of all these weird fundamentalist cults around, mm-hmm. Nietzsche noted that, of course, more than anyone else. Um, had this happened 100 years ago or 500 years ago, I'm guessing that our response would be rather different, particularly in a, in a, in a Christian world where the idea Dear or the ideal or the promise of heaven was so real. Yeah, I, I've I spent a lot of time thinking about the idea of, of, of heaven. So I was raised an atheist. Uh, my parents were both uh, wasps and they rebelled in the 60s against their upbringing and raised us as atheists, us children. I have an older brother and sister and I, and I love being an atheist. I still am. Um, uh, but I really leaned on the Jewish traditions of my wife to grieve for my children. Um, so n- not the belief in God, but the belief in the traditions. And I discovered, I, I discovered that they had a lot of wisdom in them. And they really taught me what it means to grieve. You grieve in community, that you talk about your loss to other people, that you deal with your loss again and again. Uh, you know, the, the Jewish tradition is that you have to say mourner's cottage, the mourner's prayer every day for the first year after the death. So you have to really engage with your loss and you have to do it 
in community. You can't say the, the, the mourner's prayer alone. There have to be at least nine other people with you. And so these pieces of, of wisdom were, were really eye-opening for me. Um, but in terms of the heaven and hell, what I think about is, you know, the phrase, they're in a better place. So I, I only had one person say that to me, but I know many people uh, in grief who have heard that many times. And I, I think it's interesting, I was just thinking about it today, that, that if you do believe in, in heaven, that doesn't mean that you don't get to grieve in the here and now. In other words, even if you believe that, oh, I'm going to be reunited some other time, but you're still here on earth right now and you're grieving a loss. In other words, the belief in heaven doesn't fix loss. It doesn't like solve it. <laughs> you know what I mean? You yeah, and it it really undermines, I mean, your particular loss undermines the whole Christian narrative. Remember it, and thinking about it more, this painting I saw had three images. One of a man in in hell, in chains, as a sort of uh, a warning to misbehave in the world, a, a beatific woman who was in heaven, happy, because presumably she'd been good, and someone in purgatory who wasn't quite sure where they should or shouldn't be. But, of course, your loss was of innocence, of people who hadn't even lived really yet. So the idea of a, a judgment was absurd. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's interesting because I didn't have a belief in God, it, the, the crash didn't shake my beliefs. <laughs> in mm. other words, some, some people who were religious really were rocked in my community. It, it, was, a, it was a reverberating loss in my community um, of Christians and Jews alike. And, um, and, uh, and the people who were religious had a hard time <laughs> with, with that aspect of it. Um, but I, I, I don't really believe that, um, that, you know, that only the bad guys, um, suffer in this world. Right. Uh, sadly, a lot of terrible things happen to really good people. You mentioned your wife. Um, she, like you is in the, the, the creative uh, industry, Gail Lerner, you, uh, she and, uh, Colin Campbell and Gail Lerner, uh, I think co-directed Seraglio 2000, uh, which mm -hmm. was shortlisted for an Oscar. I was actually looking at it before the show. Language oh, is nice. important there. You talk about <laughs> uh, this woman who was, uh, someone fell in love with this woman and she's, she, who sent her, they sent her a note, four thighs at the gates to a magnificent Seraglio. So you are yourself understanding the value of, uh, of, of, of language. I wonder, you know, the production of children, the creation of children is, is a, collective act you and your you and your wife uh, and also um also um the community was your most people don't tend to work with their husbands or wives <laughs> on creative endeavors it's quite unusual did this change or affect you think the way the two of you have dealt with this terrible loss Oh, you mean the fact that we were we were able to collaborate as artists? Well, that you collaborated and created something. I mean, it, obviously, it's not a child, but it's um, in intellectual terms. I guess it's the closest thing. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was. It was thrilling to to we wrote, uh, produced, and directed it all together, the two of us, 
uh, it was it was nominated for an Academy Award, which is pretty amazing. Um, but uh, I, I think the two of us are have always been you know very much in sync um, emotionally. So uh, you know some there's a interesting. A lot of people said to me afterwards, you know, oh, you know that after the death of a child, that usually the couple divorces. And I thought, well, hey, that's a weird thing to say to me, <laughs> right? Um, and B, it, it doesn't feel that way. It feels like Gail and I are clinging to each other in this terrible situation. Uh, and sure enough, that, that statistic is not true. The divorce rate is actually lower than the national average. Um, it's just like a, a urban Greek, uh, Greek, an urban grief myth um, about about uh, life after the death of a child, it, it very very often will bring couples closer. Uh, it also does end, end relationships, but most often brings them closer um, because they're the only ones in the world that share this terrible pain. Uh, she has also responded, I think, in part to to this mm -hmm. terrible tragedy by, I mean, she's already a, a quite a well known uh, writer in Hollywood. Uh, for television and film, but she wrote her own uh, novel, the children's novel, The Big Dreams of, of, of Small Creatures. Uh, yeah. I'd actually like to get her on the show at some point. Um, yeah. Is it coincidental that you both responded by producing creative work uh, directly no. or indirectly connected with your children? Yeah, no, no, it's definitely part of our grief journey is, you know, how, how do we how do we work through our loss? Uh, and so her, her book is, is a delight, is the opposite of mine, it's just pure delight. <laughs> it's charming, it's funny, um, it's, it's imaginative, uh, and it's inspired by Ruby and Hart. So they're the, the, the main character. Um, she is like a scientist, just like Ruby. Uh, and then the, the sort of villainous character, the boy wants to be an actor, like Hart, you can see him in the background there. Mm. <laughs> And then there are, in addition to that, what happens in the story is that, is that that young girl discovers that she can talk to insects and that starts this adventure. Um, and, and the young boy has been harassed by insects all his life and he wants to kill all the insects. So they're on a crash course, the two of them. But um, the, uh, the, there are two ants, the uh, brother and sister ants, uh, characters in the book as well. And they are really modeled on Ruby and Hart much more closely. Um, their relationship is quite beautiful. Um, also, you know, we haven't talked politics. I mean, uh, regular viewers and listeners show I can always squeeze politics out of anything, even this sort of terrible tragedy. I know that Gail was quite active on uh, Instagram um, after mm. the, the tragedy, um, a year actually after, and I'm quoting her on Instagram, one year ago today, our two teenagers, Ruby and Hart Campbell, were killed when a drunk driver crashed into our car, ending their lives and destroying ours. Since the sickening moment of impact, we have been relentlessly heartbroken, furious, re rarely able to imagine a future with any joy in it and sick with survivor guilt in the moments we can. Um, I thought Colin and I would be spending this painful week thinking only of the unending pain we suffer as grieving parents. Instead, I find my mind and heart consumed with thoughts of other mothers who grieve young children and teenagers as well. Tamir Rice's mother, Samaria, Trayvon Martin's mother, Sabrina Fulton, 
Michael Brown's mother, Leslie McSpadden, and countless other black parents who mourn children of all ages. We all have the single most terrible thing that can happen to a parent in common. But because of our race, we have little else. I found that very moving and, and relevant. Uh, I mean, she wrote that, of course, but I assume you're on the same page. Well, what does that say yeah. about us, Colin, that uh, that uh, that that uh that in, in instagram message from gail I, I mean i think it speaks to two things one is that uh i've discovered <laughs> when you uh when your heart gets ripped open when your heart gets ripped in half uh it feels like you can either turn angry and bitter and and just rail against the universe or you can find a a, a form of a fierce compassion and and start to understand other people's pain because now you understand pain in, in a whole new way. Uh, and I think it also speaks to the idea of meaning and purpose. Uh, so I think when anyone suffers a profound loss, it's such a blow to their identity. And it's so devastating that, that you can really feel like, you know, why am I alive? I, I have no reason to live anymore. Uh, I, I've lost my purpose. What I thought was important is just not important anymore. And, and I, I'm lost. And I feel like Gail and I both have very actively tried to re-engage with life uh, and re-engage with a meaning and purpose. And so, so that, that I think was really Gail trying to be of service in the world. Uh, and we raised a lot of money uh, for Black Lives Matter. So, um, and that, that helps, it helps us because it helps us feel like, ah, you know, here's why we're alive. And I think it also propelled my writing my book. The idea that maybe something that I say could help other people uh, in fresh grief who were struggling like I was struggling gave me meaning and purpose. I mean, it must have been, the whole COVID thing must have been so, I mean, it was bizarre for everyone, but for you guys in particular, for you and Gail, mm. having had this terrible loss and then COVID coming along and being locked up, it must have, it must have been and I use this word, I don't again, maybe I don't have any other words. It must have been truly surreal. It, it, it was, well, I guess it was surreal for everybody, like you pointed out. But it, it had one element that was really hard was that everybody was hunkering down with their family. Um, they were trapped with their families and complaining. And Gail and I were just had a, a gaping hole where our family was. And all we wanted was to be hunkered down with Ruby and Hart. And so that was hard. That was hard to hear people complaining, you know. Um, and, and it was also hard because people were fixated on it, and, and rightly so. It, you know, it was life or death for, for millions of people, but, um, but it wasn't the headline in our lives, you know. The whole world goes into lockdown, but actually what I'm really thinking about is Ruby and Hart. Mm. Um, so that was a surreal, like, dissonance. Like, the whole world is, is connecting, it felt like. And we're not really because that's like the B story um, for us. Colin, let's end with, with the children. Um, the book is, of course, about them. Uh, in your um, Atlantic piece, you have a, a wonderful paragraph <laughs> on the humor of um, Ruby. She sounds like a delightful young lady. <laughs> Maybe just... Yeah. And I mean, this is such a hard conversation for everyone. Uh, I mean, obviously for yourself, the book is just about to come out. I assume you're doing a lot of these sorts of conversations. Hopefully they won't become routine. 
but maybe just tell us a little bit, maybe a couple of anecdotes about Ruby and and and, and Heart to end to, to in a sense keep them alive. Yeah, no, I love it. No, so Ruby was this amazing budding artist. So she just discovered art. I think when she was like 15 years old, uh, and it just exploded her interest in it and her talents. Um, and so she she. You know, I, I have a painting in, my, in the background. I can, can I show the painting that she did? Yes, please, please. Okay. So, so she was taking it. She was just in, in uh, junior in high school, but she was taking classes at the Pasadena City, City College. Mm. Um, I'm holding it back. There you go. Um, and wow. it, was, it was a live, um, it, it, was, it was supposed to be a, a drawing class, you know, pencil. And the, and the final was to draw a full length uh, drawing of yourself, self-portrait. And Ruby's like, I'm going to do a painting. I'm like, no, no, don't do a painting, Ruby. Just do a pencil and get the assignment over with. And she's like, no, Dad, I'm going to do a whole painting. Um, and she did. And she did. And it was quite extraordinary. And so she painted herself as this butch warrior from the 1600s. And like pantaloons. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, so that was kind of her character. And then Hart was, the, was an amazing clown. Uh, he did all these crazy characters, like all day long, quite frustratingly so for us, but it was hilarious. You can see him right there in the picture. He, he's got a ridiculous face on. Yeah. He just put on these ridiculous faces. For our listeners, we have an image of uh, the family, the four, the parents and the two children. Yeah, it's like a, our little Halloween costumes. But he was this amazing character actor. And uh, his characters were so wonderful that, that all his friends like knew them by name and they'd call them out like, Oh, can you be, you know, <laughs> Richard, can you be Bill? Can you do Bob, do Bob. Um, and he was, uh, he was quite extraordinarily gifted and funny. Um, but the, the real quality that they had was kindness. That, that's really what I'm left with the most. Uh, they were both hilarious and funny, but at bottom they were, they were kind, kind human beings that cared about other people.